Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We are going to be in our next 316 of the Bible as we go through our top 316s in canonical order. This week we are in Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, and our focus will be on verse 16. For some context, I am going to start with verse 15, and I will read to verse 18. I ask if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Galatians three fifteen to 18. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we ask that you would indeed speak to us from your word. Bless not only this reading, but bless now we pray the preaching. And may your spirit open up our minds to see and open up this text and reveal your truth to us. Write it upon our hearts. Mark our lives with the things you show us today. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So my voice is feeling a little dry and weak this week, which might be a hallelujah for you. So we'll see how long it holds up. Bear with me. When I was a child, one of my favorite fun songs that I learned at church and at vacation Bible school was Father Abraham. How many of you know... Father Abraham, okay, many of you. Okay, for those of you who don't, you're in for a treat, okay? So, the, the song is just one verse, right? You sing the verse, and then you call out a body part. So you sing the verse, and you yell, right arm, and then you raise your right arm, and then you sing the verse again, and you wave your hand, wave your arm. Then you say, Right arm, left arm, and then you sing it again, doing this, and then left leg, right leg, jump up and down, and then it's just for kids, and it's supposed to get sillier and sillier, and it was a lot of fun. Okay. And the line, or the verse of the song is, I'm not going to sing it, I'll just say it, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you, 
So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, Father Abraham. And it keeps going. Okay. So that was a lot of fun when I was a kid. I, and of course, it's, it's unforgettable. It was unforgettable. But you know what? I was, I was a strange kid. I was a... Right? I'm a strange adult. So it, it's, it makes... It makes sense. And I, would, and I would sing the song. We'd have a good time. And, I, and every now and then, I'd think about that song... And even in later, like in high school, college, I was still thinking, that's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird song. It says, Father Abraham had many sons or daughters or children, and I'm one of them, and you are too. And I, and I would puzzle sometimes and think, now wait a minute, how is it possible to be a son of Abraham if I'm outside of the family lineage? You know, if I go on Ancestry.com, I'm not going to be able to track those little fig leaves back to, back to Abraham. Much less the original fig leaves of Adam and Eve. <laughs> so, how, how am I a son of Abraham if I'm not like part of his, you know, lineage, his progeny? If I'm not Jewish, how can I be in Abraham's family? Why, why are we singing that? Why do we think we're... In Abraham's family. I would think about this. And then I would say, well, perhaps more fundamentally than that, and maybe this is a question you, you would have, why should I care if I'm in Abraham's family? What's the point? Why would I want to be? Why does it matter? Well, actually, it matters quite a lot. That might be surprising, but it matters quite a lot in the New Testament. How you're related to Abraham. Paul actually wrote about this at length in at least two of his letters, and it comes up as a side comment in a couple other places. But in his letter to the Romans and in his letter here to the Galatians, he has a lengthy discussion about Abraham and Abraham's place in Christianity. And in our passage this morning, Paul explains the place of Abraham in Christianity and why it is absolutely essential that each and every Gentile Christian become a member of Abraham's family. In fact, what we're going to see is the gospel, salvation, the world to come, Christianity itself stands or falls with God's covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendant, who was ultimately Jesus Christ. And our salvation, our relationship to God, stands or falls with our relationship to Abraham and his family and his covenant and his great descendant, Jesus that's where we're going. So, if we're going to understand our relationship with the Abrahamic covenant, we need to take a step back and ask, what is that covenant? And that's really where Paul starts in the passage as well. So, let's begin with the Abrahamic covenant and see how Paul unpacks this for us. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, to give a human example, he's talking about an example of covenants. To give a human example... Brothers, 
Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. Now, in these two verses, Paul mentions three things. He mentions Abraham's covenant, he mentions promises, and he mentions offspring. The covenant, the promises, and the offspring. Now, what is Paul talking about? Well, let's take them one at a time. First, the covenant. This passage assumes from the reader that you have some background knowledge about the Old Testament, that you already know a little something about Abraham. And the basics of what it's assuming you're already familiar with is this. The record of Abraham's life, which is called the the Abrahamic narrative or the Abrahamic cycle, is in the book of Genesis. And it starts in chapter 12 and goes to Abraham's death in chapter 25. That's the Abraham cycle. That's the record of his life in that section of Genesis. And in there, you'll see the description of how God made a two-part covenant with Abraham. Part one was in Genesis 15, and part two is in Genesis 17. And then across those chapters from 12 to 25, there are several other sections that give all the other details of all of God's promises to Abraham. Now, we don't have to go through all those to understand what this covenant is all about. We can just take the summary statement about that covenant at the very beginning of the story. In Genesis chapter 12, we get the story of when God called Abraham to belong to him. And in this section, we get the summary of all of God's promises that are in this covenant. So here are the promises summed up at the beginning of Abraham's journey with God. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. Right now he's just called Abram, his original name. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everything else God has to say to Abraham by way of promise is summed up here in Genesis 12, 1-3. All the later promises are just elaborations on what's already contained here with additional details thrown in. But this is the gist of it. God calls Abraham to leave his country, leave his father's house, leave your old family behind. In other words, break all the ties with who you are and where you're from because God is going to start a brand new family that's eventually going to be a brand new nation that did not exist before. He's going to turn you into a great family, and that great family will grow to be a great nation, and that will be 
the people that belong to God, Abraham's family that becomes a great nation. I will bless you, Abraham. I will make your name great so that you can be a blessing to others. I'll bless you so you can share your blessings. And eventually, all of your blessings are going to flow to the whole world. That's where it ends in verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that last promise, Paul picks up in Galatians 3. And Paul says, that promise was God's revelation to Abraham of the gospel. The gospel comes up in Genesis 12. You don't have to wait till the New Testament to get the gospel. Paul says, God showed Abraham the gospel right back in chapter 12 of Genesis at the very beginning of Abraham's journey with God. Paul says this in in Galatians 3, back in verses 8 and 9. He says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's the families of the earth, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and then he quotes Genesis 12, 3, in you shall all the nations be blessed. All the families of the world will be blessed. And in verse 9 he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Or as he goes on to say in verse 14, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles. So this is a gospel promise. The covenant that God made with Abraham includes all these promises, and at the heart of it is a promise about the gospel. That through Abraham, the nations, all of them, all families of the world, will find his great blessing. And the big question is... Who do those promises and that covenant belong to? In our text, Paul mentioned covenant, promise, and offspring. Who is the offspring? Paul says in Galatians 3.16 that it's singular, offspring, not plural, offsprings. And he says it's one person, one man, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the great descendant of Abraham. This, by the way, is part of why in that genealogy at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew traces Jesus' lineage back to David and to Abraham because of stuff like this. The great descendant of Abraham, the one who is the true heir It's Jesus, and that genealogy shows his lineage back to Abraham. Jesus is the one who will inherit the promises. Jesus is the one who is the true heir of Abraham's covenant and blessings. Now, this raises two very difficult questions that we need to take up in our next point. If the offspring is Christ... And if, as Paul said in Galatians 3, salvation comes through faith in the Abrahamic promises, 
then what about the Jewish people? And what about the Jewish law? What do you do with those things? What about the Jewish people? And what about the Jewish law? Let's take the second one first, since that's what Paul is directly addressing in our passage. The question of the Jewish law. Big problem here, Paul. If you're saying salvation comes through promise, and it comes through Abraham, and it comes through faith, because how do you receive a promise? Work for it? No, you believe a promise. By faith, you believe in this promise, and you receive the thing that is promised. And only by faith. That's what Paul said earlier in Galatians 3. So if we're justified by faith, if we're saved by faith, if we get saved by having the same kind of faith Abraham had in Genesis 15, where it says Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness, apart from any kind of works Abraham did. Well, if that's true, then what about the law? We got a big problem. It looks like Moses is the enemy of Abraham. It looks like the law is opposed to promise. Big, big problem, Paul. How are you going to settle this? Where does the law fit into this whole equation? And so Paul wants to say three things to answer this question about where the Jewish law fits into this scheme now that the true heir is here, now that Christ has come. The first thing he says is he doubles down on the first point he made. Salvation is by promise alone, not by law. And because it's by promise, it's only by grace. And because it's only by grace, it can only be received by faith. Anything else, it's works and it's earning and it's merit. That's what he says in verse 18. If the inheritance comes by the law, the inheritance meaning these blessings from Abraham and that covenant God made with Abraham, if that inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Here he doubles down and he says, it can only be by promise. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Nothing can void the promise. The promise stands even if everything else falls. Promise alone, that's the way salvation happens, not through the law. Earlier in Galatians, Paul says this three different times in the space of one sentence. He just repeats himself. He gets caught in a loop where he can't stop saying the same thing. It happens to preachers. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says, well, 15 and 16, he says, We ourselves, he's talking about his confrontation with Peter, the apostle Peter. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There's one. Same verse, so we also, we Jews by birth, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, there's two, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, three different times in, in one breath, how much clearer can Paul be? Faith, 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 
promise, 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 grace, 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 not works, 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 law, law, law. That's not how it happens. So that's his first thing he says about this. He doubles down and says, it's only by grace, it's only by faith, it's only by this promise that God made to Abraham. And the covenant with Moses and the law of Moses, the Jewish law, does not annul God's promises to Abraham. If there's a conflict, Abraham wins. But then he addresses the second thing. He says, however, there's not a conflict between the two. Moses is not the enemy of Abraham. The law is not opposed to the promises. Or as we might say, the law is not opposed to the gospel. The law is not in conflict with the promise, Paul says, because the law was never intended to save anybody. The law was never intended to save anybody. He says this in verse 21. He asks the question, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Answer, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What's the implication? If God had given the law as a means to get life, to be saved, to have the righteousness you need to be saved, then yeah, we'd be saved by the law. But obviously God didn't do that. In fact, not only does the law not save, it does exactly the opposite. The law always condemns. If you back up in Galatians 3 to verses 10 through 12, he says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, verse 11, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, they're very different. The law always condemns. The law can't give you life because we're sinners. All the law can do is point out the sin. And all the law can do is say what sin deserves and bring down justice and judgment and condemnation for every transgression. The book of James says, yeah, you might keep the do not murder part, but what about this other commandment over here? The same God made both laws, so you kept one but not the other. Big deal. I mean, it's better that you kept at least one of the two, but you've still broken the law. You're still a transgressor, and all the law can do is say, ha-ha, guilty. And all it can do is pronounce not the blessing, but the curse. Not the blessing, but the curse. So God never gave the Jewish law contained in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law, books of Moses, the law of Moses. God did not give that law to Moses to give to the Jewish people to say, here, get busy getting your, earning your way to heaven. That's not what it was for. It was supposed to be, I have saved you from Egypt. I have brought you on eagle's wings out of the fiery furnace of Egypt. You are my people. You belong to me. Here is this law that shows you how to walk in my ways. Out of gratitude and love for me. Not out of a sense of paying me back or trying to be worthy or trying to earn anything. 
And as soon as anybody, any, anyone among the Jewish people or any of us today who are Christians who take God's law and twist it into a ladder that we're supposed to use to climb to heaven on our own strength and merit and worthiness, we've absolutely, uh, we've absolutely distorted what the law was given for. We've turned it into something God never intended it to be. So there's really no conflict between God's promises and God's law because the law was never meant to be in competition with God's promises. The law is not the enemy of the gospel. The law is actually an assistant to the gospel. The law complements the gospel. This is the third thing Paul says. First was salvation is by promise, not law, period, end of discussion. Number two, the law is not in conflict with the promise because it was never intended to save anyways. So then, number three, why the law then? Why did God give the law? And Paul says it was for two reasons. The first reason is to preserve Abraham's lineage, his biological, ethnic, physical descendants in his family tree. It was meant to preserve that lineage, the Jewish people, until the time that the true heir arrived. And the second reason that he gave the law is to prepare that lineage, to prepare the Jewish people to believe in that heir once he arrived. The law was to preserve a people for God and to prepare that people for the heir to arrive. And that's what the law is supposed to do. That's part of what the holiness of the law is for. The holiness of the law was to set Israel apart and to say, this is my special people that I brought out of Egypt, that I've given my, my law, and they're to follow that law as a way of maintaining the people of God up until the time that the Jewish Messiah would be born out of that lineage. The offspring of Abraham, singular, not plural. And it was meant to prepare this people to recognize the Messiah when he came. So why, did the, why were the Jewish people commanded? Why were the ancient Israelites who ended up becoming the Jewish people, why did they have to keep kosher, the laws of kashrut? Why did they have to uh, keep the Sabbath? Why did they have to wear phylacteries? And why did they have to wear the, the tassels? And why did they have to dress a certain way? And why did they have to keep all these 613 laws about what, you, what kind of seeds you sow in this field and how you treat the stranger and how you... What was all that for? It was to make them a unique, distinct nation. And that was part of their holiness. Because holiness means separation. God said to Abraham, leave your father, leave your home, leave your land. You're going to be a new man, the head of a new family, the start of a new nation. And this law is going to mark you out as that nation. It was to preserve that people so that they weren't... I mean, how many times were the Jewish people conquered? How many times were they exiled? And yet they still maintained their peoplehood so that Jesus would still be able to arrive at the right time God had planned. And part of why they maintained their peoplehood was because of the law. That was part of why Paul... Uh, why Paul says God gave the law to preserve Abraham's lineage and then to prepare them to receive the Messiah when he comes. Paul mentions this in verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then he goes on to say in verses, uh, verse 22, The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, faith in this Messiah, before this time of faith came, we were, kept, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You see how the logic works for Paul. It's like a child who's a minor who needs to be under the careful watch and tutelage of teachers and guardians. But once that child grows up and becomes mature, he doesn't need the guardian to hold his hand anymore. To take him by the hand and, and lead him around. The law was supposed to take us by the hand and lead us somewhere. And once we get to where we're going, the law is supposed to drop our hand, hand us over, and take a step back. The law is meant to lead us to Christ. And once Christ is here, the law's job is done and he can take a step back. So Paul says we are not under the law anymore. It has fulfilled its function. Christ is the true heir. Christ has come to redeem those who were imprisoned under the law and to bring Abraham's promised blessing to the nations through faith, not through law. And this is truly what we celebrate at Advent. We remember as the people of God waited and looked and longed and prayed for this Messiah to come. We too are waiting for the promises to be finally accomplished, just as they were then. This is what we celebrate at Advent. And as Christians, this is what we celebrate, the fact that we have Christ, we have the gospel fulfilled for us, and we no longer have to be under the tutelage, the guardianship of the law. As uh, Paul will say in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back under the law. The Messiah is here. You are under grace, not law, he says. Now this leads us to our last point today. And this brings us to our second difficult question that we raised at the start. Those questions were, what about the Jewish law? And then the question we have to address now is, what about the Jewish people? And in answering this question, we'll come back to the starting point of the whole sermon. How can I be a child of Abraham if I'm not Jewish? And why does it matter? This is the question of, who are the true heirs of Abraham's promise and Abraham's covenant? Who does the gospel belong to? Who, do, who does the grace and promise and salvation of the gospel belong to? And the reason it matters is because only the true heirs will inherit salvation. There is no salvation outside of 
Abraham's covenant and promises. There's no salvation for anyone outside of Abraham's family. That's why it matters. Now to see how this works, we'll watch how Paul ties it together. He says, the true children of Abraham are not those who are born under the law, but those who follow in Abraham's footsteps of faith. He says this in Galatians 5, starting in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, convert to Judaism, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And in verse 6 he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. These Christians who are being tempted to convert to Judaism, to, to go back under the law and say, yeah, we have Christ and that's great, but we got to get busy keeping the law. And that's part of how we get saved. Paul says, if you go there, you've cut yourself off from Christ. And it's a pun. He says, if you accept circumcision, you get cut off from Jesus. You'll be severed from Christ. And that means you've fallen away from grace. That means the, all those gospel promises are gone. You've, you've gone the wrong way. You're trying to go backwards. The new has arrived. Circumcision doesn't mean anything anymore. In other words, be, belonging to the Jewish people isn't how you get saved. And it never was. You've always been saved by grace through faith. That's how Abraham was saved. The, the head of the Jewish people. And all of his descendants have been saved the same way. The law's not there to save anybody. The way you get into the covenant, the way you get into the family, the way you get the promises, the way you become an heir who inherits salvation is only by faith. And when in the Old Testament, it was by faith looking forward to the Messiah who would come. And today it's by faith looking back at the Messiah who's already come. The law has its place to show us what holy living looks like, but it's not there for us to turn it into a ladder by which we climb ourselves up to heaven. Jewish believers in Jesus, together with Gentile believers in Jesus, form the one worldwide family of Abraham that receives his blessing. And that's because once the Messiah has come, Christ is the foundation of God's new covenant Israel. Israel, what Israel means under the new covenant now that Jesus has come, it gets redefined around who belongs to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus by faith, you are connected to the true heir. 
You've been incorporated into the one who is the heir, and so you stand to inherit with him. He shares his inheritance with you freely. Freely. In Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are Abraham's children? Who are his descendants? Anybody who has faith. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or as he concludes the chapter... He says in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're incorporated inside of Christ. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all united as the singular offspring in Christ. And then he concludes in verse 29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Advent is all about the fulfillment of God's promises. The people of old were watching and waiting and praying for Christ to come for the Messiah to be revealed. And he came in answer to those prayers in the first century. And God made him the foundation stone of his new temple, the foundation of his new family, the elder brother. God made him the stumbling stone on which the new Israel is built, but those who reject and disbelieve trip over that stone to their own destruction. If you are in Christ, the one who came in Advent, you stand to inherit the promises. You stand to inherit the blessings. If you belong to Jesus, then by faith you can say, Father Abraham had many sons, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, not with right arm and left arm only, but with our whole soul, and give him all the glory, the one who came to fulfill God's promises, to claim those promises for you, to offer them to you freely by his grace and mercy, to take away all your sin, to give you eternal life by grace through faith in those promises sealed by the blood of Jesus and through that way alone. Rejoice, you who believe in Christ. Rejoice, you heirs of promise. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you've made these wonderful and precious promises long, long ago, millennia ago, and that you were the same God yesterday and today and forever, and you have kept careful watch over those promises. You have made careful watch over your word to make sure it gets fulfilled according to your own wisdom, according to your own plan and purpose, which you purposed for us before the ages began from all eternity. And you chose us to be your people, and you made promises to us, and you have seen those promises through up to this very day. And we today, by faith in Christ, get to stand as heirs, 
those who will inherit eternal life, the full purchase of your redemption, the world to come, and everything that goes with it. We stand in the line of succession only by faith and only by your grace, and that's why we give you all the glory today. Help us to trust these promises, to cling to them, to know that we don't have to use the law to earn anything from you, but that we can just sit back and by faith receive your full grace and salvation for us. And then out of gratitude, our hearts can be changed and stirred to then take the law and use it for what it was intended for, merely as a way of expressing our deep gratitude and love for you by walking in all the ways of obedience that you call us to, purely to worship you, please you, glorify you, and to love and serve our neighbors, and not in any way to earn something from you. Lord, help us to have that mindset and heart set to walk this Christian path. And in this season of Advent, may our eyes be looking forward to the day when you will return. And may we long for that day, and may we rejoice as the heirs of that full inheritance that's coming our way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.